You might like to have your Bibles open to Ruth chapter 1 this morning as we uh, think of this family, Naomi being a mother and thinking of a husband and two sons and even the wider family. Well, unless you've been hiding under a rock for the last 12 months or so, you will know that Russia has invaded Ukraine and the world is again at war even if we don't realise it yet. Yes, the fighting of the dying basically just seems to involve Russians and Ukrainians at the moment. But whether or not this war, you know, uh, expands, if you like, or escalates into World War III remains unknown. But we hope and pray that it doesn't come to that. When you look more broadly at what's happening in the world around us, we find China is still threatening to move in on Taiwan. North Korea has been lobbing the occasional missile over Japan. Finland has rushed to join NATO. And other countries around the world, like the Sudan and Afghanistan, are experiencing violence and strife and innocent suffering and loss of life. And there are many people who are thinking, why hasn't God stepped in and done something about this? Where is God in all of this? Ever felt like that? Life is full of events and tragedies that don't seem to be fair. Some of them remote and some of them very close to home. Like a pandemic that has killed some millions and millions of people worldwide or like family or friends who are suffering from health and drug-related issues, like young children who have been diagnosed with leukaemia and liver cancer, or like the death of loved ones. And it's not unusual for people, even Christians, to be anxious and worried, to be wondering, where is God in all of this? We pray, and sometimes we are blessed as we see God's mighty hand at work and answered prayers. And sometimes we wonder why God doesn't seem to be answering our prayers. Hence we need to be reminded once again of the assurance of Scripture as we've been reflecting on over the past couple of weeks that God is sovereign and in control of all things. That Romans 8 verse 28 God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God doesn't promise us an easy life, but he does promise to always be with us and to help us through all those difficult and painful and desperate moments in our lives. As we look at Ruth chapter 1 this morning, John Piper says, Ruth is a story that shows how God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He says it's a story for people who wonder where God is, when there are no dreams, no visions, no prophets. It's for people who wonder where God is when one tragedy after another attacks our faith. He says, what the book of Ruth does for us is to give us a glimpse of the hidden work of God during the worst of times. God can and does plot for the good of his people. It's true at the national level 
and we will see that it's also true at the personal and family level as well. Well, with those first few thoughts in our minds, let us pray and ask for God's guidance and understanding as we take a closer look at this chapter this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it us. You've given it to us to provide all things that we need for life and godliness. And so, Father, we ask that your spirit will grant us understanding, but also grant us your assurance this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the time or the period of the judges in Israel <coughs> was rather a bleak one. It was about Israel's apostasy, about Israel's moral decline. And as you read through, especially the second half of the book of Judges, it paints a very grim picture of civil unrest and of violence and of social disintegration and of sexual and moral abuse and of war. The final verse of the book of Judges says it all when it says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And I sort of like the way the old RSV put it, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This then sets the scene for us as we begin to read the book of Judges. Verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The, name, the man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So in Bethlehem, and the name Bethlehem means house of bread, during the time of the judges, there was a famine. You might say that there was no bread in the house of bread. And so here we are faced with this family. We're introduced to Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons. And because of the famine, Elimelech took his family, packed up, and moved to Moab. To take that pun just a little bit further, you could say that the lack of bread meant that they left the house of bread in search of bread. Elimelech chose to seek life for himself and his family in Moab, a pagan nation about 60 miles from Bethlehem. Moab, a place which God himself had condemned back in Deuteronomy chapter 23 because when the children of Israel had left Egypt and were on their way to the promised land, the people of Moab refused to give the Israelites, have you guessed it, bread and water. Why did Elimelech choose to leave Bethlehem? And why did he choose Moab? Well, we're not told, are we? Maybe there was a lack of trust that God would provide for his people. Maybe he thought the grass was, yeah, greener in Moab. Verse 3 says, Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, 
took them there. Maybe he thought it's going to be better, a lot better. But then again, we don't really know. All we know is that Moab is a pagan country with foreign gods. Now, verse 3 tells us that what was supposed to be a, a ticket out of difficult circumstances in Bethlehem only gets them far as a graveyard in Moab. Verse 3. Now, Eli Melik, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. That family went in search of continued life but found death instead. Naomi is suddenly left widowed along with her two sons in a foreign place. And well may Naomi have said, this isn't fair. Where is God in all of this? Why has God brought us here and then allowed my husband to die? Don't you find it interesting that Eli Melek was presumably buried in Moab? And don't you find it interesting that the family doesn't then move back to Bethlehem, but they stay in Moab? The family story continues, and Naomi's two sons get married. Was this at last a sign of hope? Hope for the continuation of the family name and inheritance. A sign of hope, except for the small detail that they married Moabite women. One named Orpah and the other named Ruth. Now I suppose that's not all that surprising, is it? I mean, they were living in Moab. But although marriage to Moabite women is not outrightly forbidden in Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 23 definitely forbids any Moabite person from entering the assembly of the Lord even down to the tenth generation. So was this a sign of hope for Naomi or just a recipe for future despair? In verse 5, after ten years of childless marriages, tragedy strikes this family yet again. Both Marlon and Kilion also died and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. A famine, a move to a foreign land, the death of a husband, the marriage of her sons to foreign wives and now the death of her two sons. It's like one blow after another, isn't it? One tragedy upon another tragedy and you could be forgiven for asking, what next? Naomi had left the empty land of Bethlehem full with her husband, her two sons. But now we find that God had emptied her life. Naomi was alone in a foreign land with two young childless daughters-in-law, a widow in the company of two other widows. And widows didn't have it all that easy back in uh, 800 to 900 BC. Is this another time in her life when Naomi may have been tempted to cry out, God, this isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? Well, verse 6 brings us a sign of God's providence. 
Naomi has heard that the Lord had come to the aid of his people and provided them with food. The famine in Bethlehem was over. And so Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home. And it's interesting that after all this time, Bethlehem is still regarded as home. And in verse 7, they set out for Judah. But on the way, Naomi tells her two sons' wives to go back to their own homes. Naomi acknowledges how faithful that they have been to uh, her sons uh, and, and even to her, and yet Naomi urges them to return to their own homes, to their own people, and to find another husband for themselves. Naomi is saying that it would be far better off for them to remain in Moab than going with her back to Judah. And as they kissed and cried, both Orpah and Ruth declared that they will stay with Naomi. But Naomi continues to plead with them, doesn't she? Verse 11, "'Return home, my daughters.' Why would you come with me? And then verse 13, It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Note in verse 13 that Naomi is again drawn very low in her feelings. It is more bitter for me than for you. She sees that it is God's hand that is against her. She recognises that it is God who is responsible for all that has happened. She recognises that God is at work, not only in the good times and good things that happen, but also in the not-so-good time when life is the pits. Remember what Job said when God allowed Satan to inflict his life with one disaster, disaster after another? You might remember how Job had lost his family, his wealth, and we see him sitting there covered in boils from head to toe, even scraping his body with pieces of broken pottery. And his wife, who, by the way, didn't seem to have a single boil on her body, said to him, curse God and die. You remember Job's reply? You are talking like a foolish woman. Should we accept good from the hand of God and not trouble? Naomi had been emptied by God and she knew it. Well, this time, after more crying, Orpah kisses Naomi and says goodbye and returns home. But Ruth clung to Naomi and Naomi tries once more to convince Ruth to you know, go home like a sister-in-law. But look at verse 16. Ruth said, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. 
And when Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her, yeah? Now, the more you think about these words, the more amazing they become. Ruth's commitment to a destitute mother-in-law is just simply astonishing, isn't it? A commitment of loyalty and love. Here is a glimpse of Ruth's true character. Even though the future seems to hold no prospects for her, she is willing to share in Naomi's desolation. John Piper again says here that this is a commitment that's even more radical than marriage. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. In other words, Ruth will never be returning home. Not even if Naomi dies. But here notice how Ruth, a Moabitess, declares that the God of Israel, Yahweh, will be her God. And that she swears her commitment and her loyalty to Naomi, not in the name of some Moabite God, but in the name of Yahweh, Israel's God. Ruth acknowledges the one true and living God, the covenant God of Israel, as being her God. And now together, these two widows continue until they come to Bethlehem. As they arrive back in Bethlehem, they cause quite a stir because the women there recognise Naomi. And Naomi pleads with them to call her Mara, instead of Naomi. You see, names back then were important because they often portrayed the character of the person. And the name Naomi meant pleasant, whereas the name Mara meant bitter. Why did Naomi ask for this? Because of the way that God had afflicted her. Well, may Naomi say, it isn't fair. Yet as we come to the end of chapter 1, notice the delicate touch of hope that comes at the end of verse 22. They arrived in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. The famine was over. Naomi is back in Bethlehem at a time when God was providing for his people. And so there is a glimmer of hope. And notice that Ruth, a Moabite woman, a Gentile, was now in the place where God wanted her to be, in Bethlehem. Naomi feels in verse 21 that God has brought her back empty. But not so. Ruth is with her. And what a gift and what a great blessing Ruth will be to both Naomi and later on to Boaz as well. I wonder how often we ask our same, ourselves the same sort of questions that we've been thinking about this morning. If there is a God, why is this happening? Why do things seem unfair? when life seems to go off the rails, when a deadly virus suddenly hits the world, when tragedy and sickness threatens your life or your family and you just don't understand what God is doing or why he's doing it, 
Do you feel like that? As Christians, we're not exempt from having our emotions bottom out, are we? But the good news is that the presence of trouble does not mean the absence of God. And that's worth saying again, the presence of trouble does not mean the absence of God. God is with us and God is faithful to his word. Notice how Naomi had a confident belief that God, God the Almighty, is sovereign over all our affairs. It is God, or rather it is in God that we live and move and have our being. And in Ruth chapter 1, we see that God has been at work in the course of human history. For Ruth, a Gentile, is now in Bethlehem, in the city of David. And from there we will see Ruth incorporated into God's overall plan of salvation. For Ruth will marry Boaz, and she will become the great-grandmother of the great King David. And as we saw in our reading from Matthew 1, we see that another of her descendants will be one whose name is above every other name, at whose name every knee shall bow and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God was fulfilling his perfect will and plan. For from Bethlehem, the house of bread, out of the line of Ruth would come God himself in human flesh, the living bread, the bread of life. Do you know this God as Naomi did? Have you the faith in God that Naomi had? You see, Naomi is certain that God exists. She is certain that God is sovereign and she is certain that God is involved in her daily life even if it is to afflict her. Naomi reminds us that our deepest feelings and anxieties are not hidden from God. Instead, she placed her full, or sorry, she placed the full responsibility for all her woes squarely on God's shoulders, didn't she? God's providence is sometimes hard to accept. Here in Ruth 1, the way God dwelt with Naomi seems harsh. In fact, she felt that God had emptied her. And yet, we who have thought that... Uh, give my line of thought here. We would have thought that in the worst of times, in the days of the judges, it's interesting to see God quietly moving in the tragedies of a single family to prepare the way for the greatest king of Israel and to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And not only that, God was also working to bless and to fill Naomi and Ruth and Boaz with great joy. It's often said that God's providence is like looking at a tapestry or, you know, like a Turkish rug. If you look at the back of it, then what you see is a mess of tangled threads and unrelated colours, there are knots all over the place. But when you turn it over and you get to see the front of the tapestry uh, or you get to see 
uh, appreciate the Turkish rug on the floor, then you realise that the mess of threads and colours and knots go together to make up a beautiful picture or design. What does faith in God mean in times of affliction? Well, sometimes we'll be able to look back on suffering and see the good that has come from it. And sometimes we may not be able to do that. Sometimes we might get to see the front of the tapestry, yeah, and sometimes we'll only get to see the tangled mess of threads and knots and colours. But faith, is God's assurance that there is a completed picture, that there is another side to the tapestry, that in his love, even our sufferings and pain and hurt have a meaning and a purpose. Both James and Peter in their New Testament letters tell us that we should consider it pure joy and rejoice in our griefs and trials, for they are there to prove our faith genuine. Where is God in such times? Well, God is right there in us, with us, working out his perfect and sovereign plan. Right there, working in through all the events of history to bring about his perfect will and plan. In Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11, and yes, that verse is speaking to the exiles in Babylon, but I think it's also a word for us today as God's people, as alien and strangers in this world. God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. But above all, we thank you that you are sovereign and in control of all things. You created the world. You sustained the world. And Father, we pray that as we go through life, whether it's good times or bad times, you'll help us to remain steadfast and firm in our faith. Father, the weekend come to you. We can pour our hearts out to you. You know us intimately, you understand, and we thank you for your words of assurance that you are there and you will help us through such times. And Father, we give you our thanks and we especially look for the hope and future we have in Christ, that of being with you for all eternity in your glorious presence. And we thank you in his name. Amen.